Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. A warning, this episode contains discussion of sexual assault of a minor. In the campy film May-December, Julianne Moore stars as a notorious tabloid fixture who was at the center of a scandal after she sexually abused a minor she later married. Natalie Portman is the famous actress who's preparing to play her in a movie decades later. It's directed by Todd Haynes, who made Carol and Far From Heaven, and it contains many hallmarks of his style, including a taboo relationship and melodramatic flourishes. It's also a wickedly overwrought exploration of morality and the quest for truth. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Linda Holmes. And today we're talking about May-December on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me today is NPR film critic Bob Mondello. Hi, Bob. Hey, good to be here. And also with us is Philadelphia Inquirer's arts and entertainment editor and film critic Bidatri D. Chaudhry. Hello, Bidatri. Hello, hello. So nice to be here. Well, it's always good to have you. May-December stars Julianne Moore as Gracie, a woman who has what she defined as an affair with a boy named Joe in the 90s. He was in seventh grade. She was in her 30s. Gracie served time in prison, and now more than two decades later, the pair are married with kids and seem to have weathered most of the outrage within their small community. Joe is played by Charles Melton, who you might recognize from Riverdale. Natalie Portman plays Elizabeth, a TV actress preparing to play Gracie in an independent movie dramatizing the scandal. Elizabeth drops into town to observe and interview the family as well as others within their inner circle. Gracie soon comes to regret giving Elizabeth access to her life. So, what is it you love most about Gracie? She always knows what she wants. She's unapologetic. And if the premise sounds familiar, that's because there are similarities to Mary Kay Letourneau, the teacher who served prison time for raping one of her students, Vili Folau, in the 90s. Folau was 13 years old at the time. They had two children and were later married and stayed together for years, although they were separated when Letourneau died in 2020. May-December is streaming on Netflix. Badatri, I want to start with you. There is a lot going on in this movie. What did you think? First of all, the film is amazing. I think I think it's a very well-made film, but it's equally disturbing. Like by the time the film ended, I had chills running down my spine. It questions evil, it questions goodness, but I also think it implicates our behavior as audiences that at you know how at the same time audiences are obsessed with a famous people as embodied in Natalie Portman's character. But we are also obsessed with the lurid details of reality, like what really happened. And we can drive each other crazy and, you know, to pretty evil extents in our pursuit for that truth. And I think Todd Haynes does a fantastic job of playing with both of those things. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. Forgive me for just leaping in, but I the uh, it occurs to me that I spent a goodly portion of the beginning of that movie waiting for a picture of them when they were younger. Mm. I, it is that lurid tabloid thing that you do 
that, okay, I want to see the 13-year-old and the 34-year-old or whatever the... And it's awful. And I admit that. And when I looked up Letourneau, I looked for those pictures too. Mm. It's such a disturbing notion that you kind of want to get your head around how it could have happened. Maybe the kid looked a lot older. Maybe there was something that could excuse this. And you can't find it. Yeah, I agree with that. Yep. I, you know, I, I, I love Todd Haynes's work, and I'm used to him doing the sort of lurid melodrama thing. And there's a very early moment where she looks in the refrigerator, oh and you get this big <laughs> <Yes>. chord <laughs> with the Michel Legrand music. <laughs> yes, and she says something like, "I think we don't have enough hot dogs," yeah. <laughs> and I, and I just lost it, and mm-hmm. I, I just thought, "Oh my god!" I, but it's. Um, it's increasingly distressing as you're watching it. And it's 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 distressing in a, a sort of a an engaging way, which is a weird thing to say. You you get wrapped up in trying to figure out whether your reaction to things is appropriate. Mm-hmm. The performances are amazing. I mean, all of them are amazing. And I I found myself sort of psychoanalyzing them as they went realizing that they were all holding back something yeah. almost all the time. And so you weren't seeing the full them. And I'm trying to figure out what I'm not seeing at the same time. It's just a really compelling piece of work. Yeah, I agree. How about you, Aisha? I'm all in for this film. I also am a huge Todd Haynes fan. And I love what you said, Bob, about how you kind of felt implicated in a way, like you were waiting Mm -hmm. to see a flashback. Because that is so much of what Todd Haynes is doing here and with this story is that Instead of the way these kinds of stories can often be framed, which is like it's a journalist coming in to interview someone Mm -hmm. who's did something bad, we have a performer, an actor. And what I love about that is that instead of these questions about, you know, whether or not what they did was morally right or, or whether or not like this character, Gracie, is aware of what she did. It's also about just this idea that we're peeling back the artifice or like this like Trying try to examine the inherent impossibility of art to be able to fully capture the truth, mm-hmm. like in a biographical sense. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this was a kind of an attack in a way or like a skewering of the way we expect art to portray real life and depict real life. And I loved the way this all played out in the music, the way this looks like a 90s TV movie mm-hmm. or soap opera with like the soft focus. And Marcelo Zarvos is the composer here. He's just doing all all of the very like telenovela type of <laughs> music mm-hmm. that just made this both again teeter that line between both like this is disgusting and gross and how this is really um disturbing and also this is kind of funny in a way right what i thought you know going into this film i was really i was kind of nervous about it because i i wasn't sure you know, whether it was going to be trying to say anything at all about this marriage that now exists between these two people. Was it going to have some point of view about it? Was it going to try to sort of skim over that part and be all about the kind of the scandalness and the the idea of truth and all that? But it does, I think, have a point of view about the relationship that I thought was very, in its own way, like weirdly moral, mm-hmm. which is ultimately that there is no way to take a relationship that begins in abuse and transform it into a healthy adult marriage. It approaches it carefully from several different directions. Mm -hmm. How it has affected Joe to essentially, not just to be a, a former tabloid celebrity, but to have children who are 
who are not that much younger than he is now and not that much older than he was Mm -hmm. when this happened. And, you know, his childhood was essentially collapsed into this um, transition at 13 into trying to imagine himself as an adult or treat himself as an adult or think of himself as an adult. Their relationship in terms of who is taking care of who is very complicated very, complicated, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and is inverted in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had this conversation just while preparing this show. How do you talk about this relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's not an affair when it's with a 13-year-old. It's not a relationship when it's with a 13-year-old. Right. That's abuse. It's not even consent, right? And Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the film is, while not fixated mostly on that, on those kinds of questions, it is open to those kinds of questions and has something to say about them. It's also not just about that relationship. You find yourself looking at the relationship between the Natalie Portman character and the Julianne Moore character. Mm-hmm. I kept on thinking, my God, she, and you can choose a she in that case, is being awfully manipulative yep. at this moment. Yeah. And then realizing mm-hmm. that Joe mm-hmm. is also manipulating things to the extent that he can within the relationship. I think it's a it's one of the more provocative films I've seen this year. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a fascinating exercise to be compromised in the watching of of people as just awesome as Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman. And forgive me, I don't know the Joe actor because I haven't watched the... Charles Melton. I think he's great in this. He's so good in this. He's terrific in this. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very subtle... and And to some extent, he's doing it all with a with a blankness that he's yeah. learned yes. in life that it makes it even harder to do, I think, on screen in a way that is, you know, that, that gets through. Yeah. But I think he's found a way to be both provocative, but provocative in a way that I think is not, it doesn't feel fake. It doesn't feel flat. It doesn't feel like he's just trying to poke. It really does feel as though this is a story that is just so complicated, but coming at it from this angle really gets at multiple angles, not just the actual reality of it, but also just the commodification of this kind of story. I, I'm curious what you all think about the like the fact that there was a TV movie within this story that was made before, and we actually see bits of the TV movie, like the fictional TV movie right. of this. And it's very tabloid. Yeah. Well, I think he's trying to represent kind of the entire cycle of how something like this tends to be digested. And nobody is innocent, including yeah. the people who are doing the kind of high culture version of this, which I think that movie, even though I agree with you, it looks terrible. But <laughs> it's I think it's supposed to be the more artful. Yes. I also think Todd Haynes is the master of world building. And Todd Haynes also has this beautiful balance between laying it thick and then like saying something very subtly, like, you know, the fact that Joe breeds monarch butterflies through their whole arc of lifetime and then sets them free. But it's such a beautiful detail of this guy and gives us a peek into the outside world that he exists in beyond this very stifling family structure. Yeah. And the other thing I have to say about this film that I thought was so interesting and kind of darkly funny I spent the whole movie being like, which of these people are going to have sex with each other? And it's like you keep feeling like there's going to be some kind of illicit sex in this yeah, story. Exactly. And I will not say whether there is or whether there, whether there isn't, but I think that Haynes is very intentionally giving you that sense of like something – 
forbidden is going to happen at some point during this story, whether it's the two women or or what. Mm-hmm. And that score, which is bait, which is really just a, I think, an adaptation of the score of a movie called The Go Between. Mm-hmm. And it has that heavy piano music. And the piano, I think, is by Michel Legrand. Yeah. And it means that the movie is kind of thrust into this. When I say heavy piano music, you got to see the movie to understand what I'm talking about. But it's this like bong, 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 like just really (laughs) intense music from the very beginning of the movie. And it it means that the movie kind of dives into this high level of tension. The line that Bob spoke about, the line about when Julianne Moore says the thing about we need more hot dogs or we don't have enough hot dogs. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the, the other thing it's calling back to, I think, is horror, right? Mm. These very loud musical cues when something is happening, like someone's opening a door, in this case, the door to the refrigerator and hearing this. Wow, 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 wow. So, you know, I could hear Linda do that for the rest of this episode. Yeah. (laughs) What I noticed about this film is that all of these characters are in some sort of denial about who they are or what they've done, Mm -hmm. especially the Julianne Moore character, but also Joe and uh, Elizabeth. They Elizabeth doesn't realize how far she's gone. Like her director keeps saying, like, I think you need to come back now. Like, what are you still doing out there? (laughs) Um, And like, really quick to your point, Bob, I just think this this implication of us, it does make me wonder, like, okay, how does Billy Folau feel about this? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Letourneau is no longer here, but like he was the victim, uh, Mm -hmm. whether he sees himself as that or not. It does make me question, like, okay, we're turning this into a loosely, very thinly veiled adaptation of his Mm -hmm. life in a way. And it does make me wonder, you know, what does he think and how does he feel? I I, I imagine it must be maybe bare minimum weird. You know, this is something, uh, you know, the film critic Candice Fredericks, she writes uh, for Huffington Post. And I'm so glad that she touched on this, that her review of the film like really hones in on the race angle of this film, which is very, very subtle. Mm -hmm. But these both Natalie Portman and Julian Moore are white women, right? And they're like playing out this big battle of egos. I think Todd Haynes wants you to notice the whiteness of mm. the narrative here and yeah. like how this predatory behavior is essentially of two white women playing out their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And mm. if you are to assume that it is based on this case, that is true of the original case as well. And I think that's that's a very important point to be made here. Yeah. I agree. It's a heck of a film. And I, I think I think in some ways we're probably underplaying the degree to which it plays comedically a lot of the time. Mm. Oh, yes. It, you know, it's yep. just the bleakest, blackest of comedy in terms of these two women. And this Julianne Moore performance is so interesting to me because she's really trying to get at like the obvious question, which is what kind of a person would do something like this? Mm-hmm. And I think her conclusion is less to play it as outright villainy and more to play it as incredible narcissism that she's just unable to think about anything except what she wants and how she feels. And yet it also can play funny at times. It can play like weirdly sexy at times. Mm -hmm. It's a really, it's a complicated one. I'm excited for people to see it and um, react. Yeah. There are moments in it that I guess are technically funny. I saw it in in a house where there were like three other people and I, it was not, I mean, people were not laughing a lot. Right. I mean, I think in a, in a crowd they might be, 
No, that that's the thing that's so interesting. I have seen people who have received this almost entirely as a very darkly funny movie. Right. That was not how I received it, although I definitely understand the comedic undertones of part of it. Mm -hmm. But I think it is, in this way, dark, 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 darkly comedic at a number of different points, particularly when the two women are interacting, I think. The mirror scenes. Yeah, so great. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I guess this is what evil looks like moments in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. But we want to know what you think about May, December. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what's making us happy this week? This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI, generating instant, personalized results that know and show your brand identity. Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short or long-form text. No matter the placement, Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Use code HAPPYHOUR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Third Love. Third Love makes solutions for every bra problem. Give yourself more lift, smoothing, and get straps that stay put. Every style's wear tested on real women, made from premium materials, with a virtual fitting room to help you find your perfect fit. Comfort and support are guaranteed. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle, find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, local amenities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Now it is time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, what's making us happy this week. Bidatri, what's making you happy this week? What and who are making me happy this week are the people who make me happy this time of the year every year. Mm. Nora Ephron and Meg Ryan. Yay! <laughs> but what is particularly making me happy this week is watching and re-watching You've Got Mail and When Harry Met Sadie because <laughs> what else do you do when it's too cold to go yep. outside? Yep. You watch those fall rom-coms and yeah, you know, parts of it haven't aged very well. Uh, I do think Billy Crystal's character is not that nice a man anymore. No, but there's something about those films. So thank you, Nora Ephron, for making me happy. Absolutely. Perfect for fall. Perfect yes, for yes, fall. Yes. All right. Thank you very much, Bidatri. Bob Mondello, what is making you happy this week? I have been burrowing into my own childhood. Um, my husband, Carlos, was out of town for a few days, and I w- couldn't watch ahead on the shows that we've been watching together on TV. So I went to my computer and I looked up Dick Van Dyke season one, episode one. Oh, And yay. I watched the Dick Van Dyke show. I am now on season three, episode 22. 
So I got into it. (laughs) And that first episode has each of the characters doing all the remarkable things they're going to be doing in the future. And he does a bit in there at at a party that is supposed to be him being wildly drunk but afraid enough of his wife that he completely sobers up when she is present and she's looking. Uh-huh. Listen, honey, are you hungry? Would you like a sandwich? I would love a sandwich. All right. <laughs> and it is riotous. It is hilarious in so many ways. And I showed it to Carlos when he got back, and he said, okay, I get it now. Yay. So I was very pleased about that. Fabulous. <laughs> Carlos gets Dick Van Dyke. Thank you very much, Bob. Aisha, what is making you happy this week? Well, is Weedus's Teenage Dirtbag one of the best songs of the aughts? Maybe. Yes, <laughs> I think so. Uh, is it perfect? Yes. But can it be improved? Perhaps because they have just released Christmas Dirtbag, a holiday version of Teenage Dirtbag. Uh, let's play a little bit of that now. So <laughs> I'm always on the lookout for a new holiday song every year. Um, this one might be the one. I've added it to my playlist. But it's just fun. Instead of pining after a girl, uh, the, the band is wondering whether or not Santa likes him and whether he's been a good boy. So that's Weedus's Christmas Dirtbag. All right. Christmas Dirtbag. Thank you very much, Aisha. What is making me happy this week is a piece that uh, appeared in Vanity Fair. It is called When the O.C. Killed Marissa, colon, and then in quotes, what have we done? (laughs) And it is an oral history of when the O.C. killed off the character of Marissa. And um, this is an excerpt from the book Welcome to the O.C. by uh, my friend Alan Seppenwall, along with the creators of the O.C. who worked with him on putting the book together. Alan talked to everybody for this book, did a ton of interviews. What I loved about reading this excerpt from it is that you get this this kind of 360 view of, you know, what it looked like for the cast when they were preparing to get rid of this character, what the creators were thinking, why they made those decisions. And then he actually went back and talked to the people who were recapping the show at Television Without Pity at the time where I worked. And they sort of look back on how they engaged with the show and how the people who read the site and posted on the message boards were engaging with the show. And they both kind of go back and think about how they spoke about this character and how it bled over into how they talked about the actress. And they do some reflecting on all of that. And I thought it was really cool. It's really interesting. I'm super excited to read the rest. Again, the book is called Welcome to the OC. And the excerpt is called When the OC Killed Marissa, What Have We Done? And that is what is making me happy this week. You got to always be proud of your friends. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Aisha Harris, Bob Mondello, Badatri, D. Chaudhry, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having Great me. Thank here. you. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and Hafsa Fathima and edited by Jessica Reed. Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all next week. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. 
The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation, and if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. NPR.